the last few decades of Eastern European independence of Poland and Ukraine has really been a new thing, and Russia is not okay with it. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to this week's episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keefley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture, filling in for Dr. Quinn today. Today, we have a great episode lined up for you. Dr. Amanda O'Quinn is going to join us to talk about the history behind what's going on in Russia and Ukraine right now. But before we talk to Dr. O'Quinn, it's time for our segment called Ask the Profs. Now, Dr. Keithley, this question comes from a student. Here it is. How do you reconcile Paul's Corinthian instructions on tongues with the Acts 2 accounts? And how do we make sense of tongues today? So I think what he's referencing here is how do we make sense of what Paul writes in Corinthians with what we see described in Acts, particularly in Acts 2, but elsewhere. How do we make sense of the two distinctions there? And then what do we do with tongues today? I'm just going to hand this to you and let you have fun with it. Well, thank you very much. This is, this is a good question. There's a lot here. First, I think that we can look at what happened in the book of Acts chapter 2. And it's fairly clear from the description that we're talking about a miraculous event in which the tongues that are talked about in Acts chapter 2 is the supernatural ability to communicate in languages they otherwise would not have known. In other words, it's not an unknown language being communicated in the book of Acts. It says very clearly that as Simon Peter and the others are telling them about the good news of Jesus Christ, the 16 different nations that are represented, as it goes through and lists the different ones, these are Jews from all of these different areas, um, it, sa- it says very clearly, these are unlearned men. How is it that we hear them in our own dialect? That's how it says that. So uh, it's clear that somehow the gospel is being communicated in known languages. Now, there's a lot of things in the account that isn't clear. Did the miracle happen at the, at the point of the person speaking? Did the miracle happen at the point of the person hearing? Was it Simon Peter preaching to one and everyone hearing? Or is it that various ones had the ability to speak in other languages that they otherwise did not know? Don't know that. But one thing that comes through very clear in the Acts 2 account is that we're talking about the ability to speak in known uh, earthly languages. Now, when we come to what's going on in 1 Corinthians, it's a much more confusing situation. And I think that the reason why it's much more confusing is because they were much more confused. <laughs> I mean, you do have the, the genuine biblical gift of tongues. There are also the activities uh, brought in from the Corinthian church that appears to be some of the pagan activities. If, mm-hmm. if one knows much about uh, the situation in Corinth, there were many pagan religions in the Corinthian area known for having ecstatic utterances where they would uh, work themselves into these feverish fits, where it appears that some of that was being incorporated into the Corinthian church. And so Paul is walking a fine line, as you read through there, where he is trying to affirm that which is real. 
He's trying to weed out that which is artificial and the entire time trying to encourage the unity of the congregation. You, you see in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, what does he do in chapter 12? Well, he tries to put the gift of tongues in its proper perspective, how it's always supposed to be for the unity of the body, that the gift is not uh, to be exalted over other gifts that are more significant. Chapter 13, you have the love chapter, and, and everyone reads it at, at uh, weddings, which is fine, but that's not the purpose. Paul's addressing a very specific situation, and that is that the Corinthian church is quite proud of their various sign gifts, but they have very little love for one another, which is an indictment about whether or not they're filled with the Spirit. Do they have a Spirit-controlled temperament? And so then he goes into chapter 14, and he tries to set up some criteria and some guidelines on how spiritual gifts ought to be conducted. So I think it's very clear that what is going on in 1 Corinthians is not identical to what's going on in Acts chapter 2, which is why you, you, the, the two don't seem to square together very well. So about what is going on today, I cannot demonstrate from any passage of Scripture that says the spiritual gifts uh, are, are gone. So I do have a cautiously open view towards spiritual gifts. Uh, so I think it is entirely possible that uh, the Holy Spirit would manifest himself through some spiritual gift in a particular context. Generally, these are extraordinary contexts. I would think of a missionary setting, uh, typically. But I am not at all convinced that much of what is presented as a spiritual gift is, in fact, what was happening uh, in the New Testament. So I would call my position the cautiously open uh, position in that I don't want to say dogmatically that spiritual gifts don't uh, happen because I'm quite convinced that they do, but I, I do think that we need to have a discerning attitude towards much of what is, is presented as a spiritual gift today. So to summarize, tongues and acts is different than tongues in Corinthians. And today, could God do it? Maybe. We're not going to tell God what he can and cannot do, but we ought to be very cautious about it. Yeah. And, um, you know, I took a class with uh, Fred Williams, who uh, knows 24 languages. And, you know, I was taking a German class with him. And he would, he would uh, translate from the German into English, and there were students, you know, one was an Egyptian, so he'd say, well, what's that in the Arabic? And the other one would say, well, another student was Romanian, and he'd say, well, what's that in the Romanian? And so he would turn around and he would read German, say it in English, then in Arabic, and then write it in Romanian. Now, there's the gift of tongues <laughs> that I would love to have. You know, that's, that's the kind of, of, of ability to, to, to communicate in a, in a, in a, in a plethora of languages. Right. I think I think we could all say, yes, let me have that gift. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Keithley, for tackling that big, cumbersome question there. And uh, if you have any questions for us, for Dr. Keithley or Dr. Quinn, follow us on social media at Sebitz Bush Center on Twitter or Facebook. Let us know your question. We'd love to consider it on the podcast. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has continued, and things have only gotten worse. 
Today, we're delighted to have with us Dr. Amanda O'Quinn to get her perspective on Russia. Dr. O'Quinn is Associate Professor of History at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and the College at Southeastern. She holds a Ph.D. in History from the University of Arkansas. Dr. O'Quinn, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, you and your husband actually lived in Russia for a while. What were the circumstances? Why did you move to Russia? Right. So we lived in Russia in 1998-99. We were in graduate school. I was working on my dissertation. And so we lived in Russia, lived in St. Petersburg, and I took the train back and forth to Moscow quite a bit and did research in the former Communist Party archives for my dissertation, which was like the Wild West of history research then because the archives had just opened in the last four or five years because the communists, of course, fell in 91. So tell tell our audience what your doctorate or your PhD is in. Right. So Russian history broadly, Soviet history getting a little more narrow. And then that research topic was on Soviet-American cultural relations in the late 50s, early 60s under Khrushchev. So let's Let's create a timeline so that our listener can understand what all's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, the czars controlled Russia until when? Until 1917, mm-hmm. and the so Russian Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, and um, so at first it's Lenin. When does Stalin come to power? So Stalin consolidates his power, and so his personal kind of dictatorship begins in 1928. He's in power for 25 years until his death in 1953. How, how can we describe his power? Stalin? Yes. Horrible. <laughs> it, was, it was horrible. It was horrible for Russia. It was horrible for Ukrainians. You know, that's the thing that they look back to is the starvation, the forced starvation um, under Stalin is what how the Ukrainians remember what happened to their own people where six million people starved to death on purpose under Joseph Stalin um, when uh, the Soviet Union was controlling Ukraine. That's sort of their holocaust. That's how they look back at that. So Stalin's control of the Soviet Union at that time was absolute. Yes, he right. was he was an absolute dictator. Yes, and it furthered his agenda. Yes, to literally starve the Ukrainians right. uh, to death, millions right. of them. millions of people. He's got to break resistance. The Ukrainians had always had quite a bit of resistance against the Russians, um, even though they'd been a union going back to the 1650s. We won't deny there was a Russian-Ukrainian union, voluntary on both sides, going back to that time. But since that time, and more recently, have been trying to throw off sort of Russian dominance. And so in order to consolidate his power, you know, if you're going to be a communist dictator, you can't have dissidents. You can't have um, people who are opposed to you in the union, obviously. So he had to get rid of that. Also, with the five-year plans, he's building up industry in Russia because he's got to rise to the level. He sees what's happening and possibly going to be happening in Germany. He sees what's happening in the United States with industrial industrialism just building and building. Um, so to be ready for that, he's got to build up his industry, which means you have to get workers to the cities. Workers have to be fed. And so you have to get grain. And the grain was in Ukraine. And so he took it. So it, it served a twofold purpose. He took the grain, fed the cities, industrialized Russia, and also broke the back of Ukrainian resistance at the same time. So how long was that period of time? It was several years? It, I think it was 32 to 33. So Maybe about 18 months. So whenever we see what Putin is doing in Ukraine over a period of five or six weeks, we should understand that it is it is not outside of Russian history for uh leaders and dictators to inflict great harm and, and, and misery to people for long periods of time. Right, sure. Right. Uh, in fact, let's go on into World War II. About how many 
uh, Russians or uh, our people of the Soviet Union were killed in World War II? In World War II, I'm going to say of around, this is just a general ballpark, of around 40 million people that died in World War II. I've seen estimates that say around 20 million of those were in the Soviet Union. And that's going to include Ukrainians, not just Russians. But around half were in the Soviet Union. And so the idea of extraordinary misery. Sure, and, and suffering. S- and suffering. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I said, 40 million die in World War II, half of them in the Soviet Union. Right. It just boggles our mind. It does. I can't. We can't get our, as an American, I just can't get my head around that. Right, around that kind. And yeah. so we have Stalin. After Stalin comes Khrushchev. Mm-hmm. And now we're moving into the period of time that you studied. Is that what you're saying? Right, it did. And Khrushchev was Ukrainian. Um, so I, you know, things here, there was a thaw under Khrushchev. So things got a little bit better, I think, in different areas. He was, he in, entered upon a period of de-Stalinization, let people out of the gulags, um, rehabilitated some people who, you know, their family name was ruined if they were an enemy of the people. So he really rehabilitated some people. And he could be pretty brutal in his own right, but he was no Stalin. Um, so. so let's move on up until the 1980s and we have Gorbachev. And with this, we have basically uh, the Soviet Union falls apart. Right. We can talk about all the reasons, Mm -hmm. but it just basically, as an economic system, it was just broken and couldn't be fixed. It couldn't deliver. It could not deliver on the promises of the 20th century, which it had always promised the Russian people and the Soviet people, in which the United States, and this gets to my research, constantly promised that the American way of life was better. You you know, more freedoms, uh, more democracy, more material goods. And so the Soviets were always sacrificing, thinking, well, you know, in the future, we're sacrificing now, we're building the communist society, we'll have all those things. And I think a lot of people had given up by the 1980s, end of the 1980s. So the Soviet Union and and Russia are not synonyms. So uh, when the Soviet Union falls apart, what nations, what na- let's name we, Ukraine, what other nations break off from the Soviet Union? Well, so what com- becomes a CIS, the Commonwealth of Independent States, is sort of the post-Soviet Union group that had been Soviet Republic. So, I mean, there's the uh, Azerbaijan, Turkmenistan, Kazakhstan, the Baltic Republics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Ukraine, of course, is one of those. So there's several, yeah. So the Soviet Union has collapsed in 1989. Uh, Yeltsin comes into power uh, in the Russian, I guess, right. Russian Federation. Right. You are, you and uh, Brent are in Russia in the 1990s. Right, yeah. So what's life like in those days in, in the new Russian Re- uh, Federation? Right. You know, it was really just kind of heady times. And um, at the end of the 1990s there, like I said, the archives had opened. So that was not many Western historians had even been in the former Communist Party archives. So that was very exciting. Um, there was also a time of real financial crisis shortly before we got there where the economy just kind of collapsed and the ruble collapsed. And so that was kind of the situation we came into. Is it going to Russia as graduate students, not having much money because graduate school doesn't pay that much, as you probably know, Um, going into Russia and being able to live pretty well and having more money than plenty of Russians because we had dollars. And so that was kind of what we were going into there. And there was still um, a lot of the Soviet system as far as architecture and um, things like that in place. You could see some of the communal apartments people were still living in. So, you know, in, in a communist system like that, the state owns even where people live. The state owns the gas company. And so we were in a situation, for example, living in St. Petersburg, where the city determined when the heat came on and off. 
and you just you you hope they turn it on you know before it gets too cold and they typically did and here and there for a couple of weeks at least in the spring there was no hot water because they were doing things to the city um you know, the city water works, and so nobody had hot water for a period of time. So you have all that infrastructure that was laid during the Soviet Union, and so it's really centralized. So I think that has changed somewhat. It's modernized somewhat, but it was still very much like that in the 90s. So so that our listener understands, uh, the Soviet Union collapses in 1989. Well, 91, it dissolved Christmas Day of 91. Yes, and uh, so in 91, it dissolves. We have a Russian Federation that promises uh, a liberalized uh, society mm-hmm. and economic pros- uh, prosperity, right. but it collapses financially, financially by the end of the 1990s. It's very difficult, yes. Mm-hmm. So at this time, Yeltsin, uh, he, he resigns, retires? What does he do? I, you know, I believe that he resigned due to poor health, is how, how it was put. I'm not exactly sure what was going on there. The thing that I feel like happened in Russia, there was really the presence of the mafia while we lived there as well. The mm. mafia, you know, the communists owned everything. Things were very centralized. When you have centralized ownership like that, unlike in the United States, where there are economic centers all over the country, right? When you have mainly things in Moscow, it's much easier for a small group of people to take it over. That was the mafia that now we call the oligarchs. People talk about putting pressure on the oligarchs so they'll get rid of Putin right now. Um, It was very easy for them to steal all that. I mean, Gazprom just became owned by the mafia. So one story we tell is you would go into even a Western-owned place like a, um, oh, I guess what they have, Kentucky Fried Chicken, for example, or a Pizza Hut, and there'd be a guard standing there with an AK-47. Right. And imagine in America walking in with someone standing there basically with this automatic rifle, like very threatening. But you just really got used to it. Right. He was not a threat to you. He was there protecting that business from the mafia. as We learned as we were there. Um, so the mafia took over a lot of things um, and they were kind of running the show. And I think that's who the oligarchs are. I don't think I guess no one would call them mafia now or not to their face. But I think that's so this are. is the time that Putin comes to power. Yes. And he has, like you said, his cronies, mm-hmm. and they basically take over the country. They do. It's it's really tragic it to is. see it's very tragic. Uh, a country of this size, of the, uh, this uh, this many resources, and yet is so dysfunctional in so many ways. Right, right. So tell me, what were the Russian people like? Yeah. You know, the Russian people were very open. They were very interested um, in people from America. Most of them, of course, by far, had not traveled outside the country, which, of course, I guess is true for most Americans as well. Um, But just to have Americans there and to be able to talk to Americans um, openly without fear of reprisal, because there wasn't really fear of they could talk about democracy. That wasn't a problem. I don't think that the state media was as controlled as it currently is under Putin in the 1990s. we're just very open, very, very interested in America, and particularly, unfortunately, mostly in our consumer culture. Um, some in democracy as well, though. But that's what we had always sold to them. The American way of life is a consumer culture, and you can have all these things when you get capitalism. Did you find those that had uh, any kind of spiritual hunger? Mm-hmm, sure, yes. Yeah, there was a good bit of spiritual hunger. That was another way that Russia was the Wild West in the 1990s is that every religious group on the planet came in. I mean, there were just um, missionaries of all different, some, some Christian, of course, but missionaries of all different religions who had come in and just kind of flooded Russia because it was such a huge opening, right, after the Iron Curtain and the atheism of the Soviet Union. And I think that ended up being, there was some spiritual hunger, but I think that ended up being kind of a detrimental thing for 
the Russian people. A lot of confusion. You're talking about people who have really very little in the way of religious understanding. Most people didn't own a Bible, you know, until they could get one in the 1990s. And so that caused a lot of confusion, eventually a lot of consternation. And so you see sort of the, the resurrection of the powerful position of the Russian Orthodox Church. You bring up the Russian Orthodox Church, and Putin uh, presents himself mm-hmm. as a devoted member yes. of the Russian Orthodox Church. What was the relationship of the church to the communist regime, which would seem to be a hostile one because it of atheism? Mm-hmm. But then under Yeltsin, what happened there? Right. So it was typically hostile under communism. I mean, Stalin really tries to stamp out religion. They melt down church bells. When you have the biggest Orthodox church in the world was in Moscow. They blew it up with dynamite and we're going to build this big Soviet tower, which never happened because World War II took place. Um, And now it's been rebuilt and is, again, the largest Orthodox church in the world in Moscow. Um, And so Stalin was going to stamp that out. You know, priests, of course, are arrested. But then you have World War II. And to get people to fight a war like that, you need some kind of loyal patriotism. And you need to call on the Russian Orthodox Church to support this war. So they did that under that time. There was not as much persecution of the Orthodox while that war was being executed. Um, But the the church continued in a pretty hostile relationship with the government until 1991. They were always officially communist atheist. Dr. Quinn, knowing what you know about the history of Russia and its relationship with Ukraine, the current struggles that are going on, um, I I realize you don't have a crystal ball. But where where do you think, where do you see yeah. things going? Yeah. You know, one thing I think it's very important for Americans to understand, I mean, unfortunately, we don't put a lot of emphasis on history in our culture, you know, anymore, and I think is unfortunate. And so if you don't know the long-term history just in the last 10 years, or you just know since the Soviet Union, it seems like, well, here we have Ukraine, this great bulwark, independent nation, and, you know, here comes big, bad Russia. People have to understand that Eastern European independence is an aberration in history. It's not the norm. The norm is dependence and control by Central European powers like the Germans and also, of course, by Russia and Eastern Europe. So the last few decades of Eastern European independence of Poland and Ukraine has really been a new thing, and Russia is not okay with it. Russia is not okay with having this large country on its border that also includes, by the way, if you look at the Soviet system, as I said, a lot of the infrastructure was laid centrally, right, by central planning. A lot of the gas pipelines that go across Ukraine into Russia, Russia lost control of when Ukraine became independent. Well, of course, they're not okay with that. Um, and so I don't, how it's going to end, I think that Putin would only be satisfied to have at least a good chunk of Western Ukraine that comes back to the Russian fold, as probably he would call it. And if we're really honest, there are a lot of people who are Russian sympathizers there. In the Crimea, I would say you'd even have a majority of people who consider they would want to be part of the Russian empire instead of uh, an independent Ukraine. And that's not something we talk about that much. Um, But there is a decent sentiment of that, at least in eastern Ukraine, for sure. Hmm. If you were going to recommend uh, resources for someone to understand Russia better, mm-hmm. would be some, what would be some of the books that you would recommend? Um, you know, I I like a survey book that I use in a class um, just called History of Russia and the Soviet Union by John Thompson. And it's just really a survey, almost textbookish type, except it's more interesting, I think, than a textbook, the way that he writes, um, that kind of gives a broad survey of Russia. Going back to Kiev and Rus, right, we have Kiev in there. Um, up until the post-communist world. Dr. Quinn, thank you for talking with us. All right, thank you. 
Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. And now it's time for On My Bookshelf, the part of the show where professors at Southeastern tell you what they're reading right now. Today we have with us Dr. Christy Thornton. So Dr. Thornton, what's on your bookshelf? Yeah, so I'm working on some church history things, teaching a church history class this semester, and I've been reviewing Vince Bantu's A Multitude of All Peoples. So in this, Dr. Bantu is filling in some gaps from the way we normally tell the story of church history, reminding us of our brothers and sisters who maybe fall outside of the normal trajectories of the Greek and Latin speaking traditions. So reminding us of Coptic Christians and Ethiopic Christians and Syrian Christians and Armenian Christians and their histories as well, and and even the expansion eastward past the Greek speaking world, just as a reminder of God's purposes and his mission is a big part of this. Uh, and to remember our brothers and sisters who preceded us as well. So Vince Bantu is really helpful to fill in some gaps for us in the way that we tell the story of church history. Thank you, Dr. Thornton, and thank all of you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, do us a huge favor. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, brief review. Seems like a small step, but it goes a long way to helping us spread the word about the Christ and Culture podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.